Well, Father, we open Your Word tonight and we do pray that it is Your Spirit at work and it is the Word of Christ Jesus that we see. Not letters on a page, Father. Not text from a manual or a book. But the truth of Jesus Christ. May we see Him and worship Him. Glory in Him. And I pray Your Spirit would reveal to us Your intentions. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ellie Weisel is a Holocaust survivor, Jewish political activist, uh, writer of many, many books. Probably the most well-known is the book Night. If you haven't read Night, it's 80 or 90 pages. It's not a long book, but it's a must-read. It is his first-hand account of his experience going through surviving the Holocaust. But Ellie Weisel once said, Go try to write Jewish fiction when Jewish reality is always more incredible than anything you can imagine. <laughs> Ezekiel's prophecies reveal some of that divine imagination. Only God can come up with some of the things that are in here and some of the ways that He presents His Word to His people. This is by far of all the prophetic books we've studied, and I believe of all the books we will study, with the one exception of Revelation, by far the most stunning as we've already talked about in terms of just different approaches the Lord uses with the prophet Ezekiel to get His Word into the hearts of His people. It's visually graphic and vividly illustrated vicarious portraits in prophecy. Ezekiel, more than any prophet before or after, will act out many of the things God desires so that the attention of the exiles will be grabbed by the rivers of Babylon. This is all very much attention-getting prophecy. It's about waking people up. Chapter 4, beginning right away here in verse 1. Now, son of man, get yourself a brick. Place it before you and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it. Build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps, and place battering rams against it all around. This word brick here in the Hebrew is Lebanon. And Lebanon is a tile or tablet of soft clay. It's the original iPad. (laughs) This is what they used. They would take a soft tablet of clay and they would put their data on these tablets. They wrote contracts, um, historical inscriptions, documents that needed preserving. They would inscribe the soft clay tablet and then bake it to harden it and make it lasting. This is one of the ways that records were kept. It's great for archaeologists because those hardened clay tablets just get harder with time and heat and the sun. And so archaeologists studying and and digging up these areas have discovered incredible amounts of history from what was previously written on these hardened clay tablets. And that's what the Lord is telling here Ezekiel to get hold of. Take hold of one of these clay tablets and inscribe it in such a way that it will portray Jerusalem. I think it was more than just writing the name Jerusalem across the top of it. I think he dug it out and and drew up a graphic of Jerusalem, because it would be a graphic depiction of what the Lord was doing. Ezekiel's iPad, his J-pad, I guess you could call it, because it's for Jerusalem there, becomes now the centerpiece of four symbolic prophecies the Lord is going to give. 
He starts with this tablet, make this tablet, and he gives four signs against Jerusalem over the next two chapters. And the first one we will just call the sign of the pad. The sign of the pad, verse 3, get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. This is a sign to the house of Israel. Ezekiel the prophet is now supposed to graphically act out the siege of Jerusalem with this little clay tablet and an iron plate. I don't know if he drew up little army men, little stick figures. I don't know what he did, but he was to lay siege on this tablet. Now, we don't know anything about Ezekiel's temperament prior to putting on his prophetic cloak. My guess, and again, this is completely surmise, but my guess is that he was anything but flamboyant. I would imagine that Ezekiel, in line for the priesthood, was probably respectable, you know, perhaps admired, and certainly focused on his priestly calling. Any priest would be in those circumstances. But these prophecies were inspired, again, to get people's attention. And so suddenly the people see this Ezekiel. They've seen him for 25 years. They've walked with him, lived with him for the five years of exile in Babylon so far. He's just one of us. He's one of our priests. Probably a pretty down-to-earth guy. And all of a sudden, weird stuff. What is up with Ezekiel? You remember for seven days he sat by the river Kabar and didn't speak a word. Causing, the Bible says, consternation among the people. Why? Because he wouldn't say anything. He was obviously ticked off, obviously upset, and yet just sits there, stewing in the Spirit. (laughs) There's a thought for you. Stewing in the Spirit. I'm going to use that. Next time Cheryl says, hey, what's wrong with you? I'm stewing in the Spirit. (laughs) And then God says, I want you to get this clay tablet, the Lebanon, and I want you to inscribe it and besiege it. And so he's acting this out. Is he playing army men? What's going on with Ezekiel here? But you need to understand more than any other prophet, these nonverbal symbols will precede the verbal statements. Nonverbal symbols, graphic depictions coming first. And then once the Lord has the people's attention, He will download His word to Ezekiel who then will speak it and make sense of these bizarre things that He's doing. And the first, the sign of the pad, He is besieging Jerusalem. It's an interesting contrast with Jeremiah. You know, just coming out of our study of the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, who was the prophet in Judah at the time, uh, really more before Ezekiel, his prophesying was starting to wind down at the time that Ezekiel's was picking up, but they were contemporaries at the same time, just in two different places. Jeremiah spoke primarily words. We didn't see a lot in terms of signs. You know, bizarre things that he was to do. There were a couple, but for the most part, Jeremiah's prophecy was in word, words of alarm. Whereas Ezekiel's prophecies are often silent. Jeremiah, words of alarm. Because in Jerusalem they didn't need the visuals. They had it. All they had to do was open their eyes. Life was a visual in Judah and in Jerusalem. But often distant Babylon, where the people are now uh, distant from, apart from, set away from the land that they know and love, not seeing what's going on, God resorts 
to very visual representations, signs, pictures, not to alarm, but listen, to awaken. Jeremiah's prophecies were prophecies of alarm. Ezekiel's prophecies are prophecies of awakening. What do you mean? Keep your finger there and go to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus explains this to us. Why you would speak or act in signs or parables. His disciples come to Him in Matthew 13 verse 10. And they said to Him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Well, that doesn't hardly seem fair, does it? You get to know, they don't. That's why I'm speaking in parables. What does that mean, Lord? Verse 12, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. For whoever has... Okay, so apparently the people who understand the parables have something that the people who don't understand the parables don't have. What is that? Faith. It's faith. And Jesus said, To you it's been given. The keys, the understanding of the parables. Why? Because you believe in me. Even to the point that Jesus will explain some of them to the apostles because he knows where their hearts are. They have faith. But to someone who doesn't have faith, someone who's not looking to believe, someone who is rebelling against the Lord, the parables come and they go, it doesn't make any sense. Because the Lord requires faith. Without faith, the Bible tells us, it's impossible to please Him. So the parables require faith. He says, verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, this is Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, with their eyes they scarcely hear, with their, and they have closed their ears, otherwise, or closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and would return, and I would heal them. That's my intention, Jesus says. If someone would just come to me in faith, come to me in belief, I'll heal them. That's the deal. But without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And without faith, you're not going to understand. Back in Ezekiel, the whole point of all of these very graphic depictions by Ezekiel, these parables, the, these prophetic types and these pictures, they are to awaken faith. They're to awaken faith. It wasn't faith the people in Judah needed. Oh, they needed faith, but they needed to get out. <laughs> they needed actually to obey. They needed to give up and go into captivity with their brothers and sisters because that's what God had decreed, right? But they needed the alarm, and so the words came. But here we are in Babylon. And the next several chapters, actually chapter 4 through 24, covers a period of five years. The first five years of Ezekiel's calling, leading from the beginning of his calling all the way up to the actual fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. All the way up to the... The siege is five years, and then two more years through the siege to the fall. So the entire seven years from his calling to Jerusalem being history. Here's the point. There's nothing the exiles could do about it. They're already exiles. They can't go back and fight. 
They can't flee. They can't run off to other nations. They can't really protest. There's nothing the exiles can do. And so the Lord is not sending words to alarm. He's sending pictures to awaken faith. See, while people are still rebelling in Judea, the Lord is already working with His people in Babylon. Developing their faith. Drawing them along. Explaining to them. Helping them understand. Awakening their faith for God's faithfulness. How does that work? Well, in these five years, Ezekiel's going to be prophesying and and portraying all of what's going on. The siege that's about to come. The horrible things that are about to happen. Ezekiel tells them all, so that when it happens and word comes to Babylon, the people will realize... We have a prophet among us. And the Lord is speaking the truth. And the Lord is faithful to His Word. And guess what? At that point, He starts to talk about the future. So He lays a foundation of proving His faithfulness and then talks about things yet to come that the people might know our faithful God historically is faithful, futuristically is faithful in front of us. He's going to bring these things to pass. And it all starts with the sign of the pad. (laughs) A sign for the house of Israel. The next sign is the sign of the position. The sign of the position, verse 4. As for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity. 390 days. Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it to you for forty days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. Perhaps one of the strangest things Ezekiel would ever do. People have talked about this over the centuries. The prophet who lay down for a year or more, 390 days to lie on his left side, and then another 40 days on top of that, lying on his right side. What is this all about? So if you're lying down with your head toward Jerusalem and you're on your left side, which way are you facing if this is east? I'll help you. North. If you're lying on your left side, head toward Jerusalem, you're facing north. 390 days in that position. And then he would turn over. And now he's going to be facing south for 40 days. North for 390, south for 40. North because he was portraying Israel. Northern Israel, the northern kingdom. The iniquity, the sin of the northern kingdom. And so he would face to the north, lying on his left side. Lying on his right side now, he's facing to the south, exemplifying the sins of southern Judah. But think about this, and this is the critical aspect of understanding this. What exactly is Ezekiel portraying here? And there's confusion that comes with this. Kyle and Delich believe this might indicate Judah's preeminence over Israel. Ezekiel or Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 2 says, A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. And no, that's not a political statement. <laughs> But that 
toward the right would be the more favorable Judah. Remember, if you will, if you can, the kings of Judah, eh, they weren't all good, but there were several good ones. Among the kings of Judah, there were those who aspired to or acted like the gold standard of their father David. Among the kings of Israel, there was not a single one. Hence, only 40 days for Judah, whereas you have 390 days for the northern kingdom of Israel. 390 days of iniquity for Israel, 40 days of iniquity or years of iniquity for Judah. And the numbers are confusing. I'm going to try and unravel a little bit here, and I may be wrong. (laughs) But as we do so, understand that God knows what the numbers mean. That God knows what He means when He assigns 390 days for the 390 years of sin in northern Israel. He knows exactly to the minute, to the second, what all those years added up to. How the sin plays into exactly 390 years. He knows the same for the kingdom of Judah. Remember this, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 19.9 tells us, The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. So whether or not we fully understand this length of time and how it plays out in Israel and Judah, we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is right. And he's fair-minded and he is just in his judgment. Okay, so why exactly 390 days for Israel? Why 40 for Judah? No matter how you slice them or try to lay it out over history, the numbers don't quite fit, at least from our perspective. They certainly don't fit northern Israel. Now some have said, okay, but if you go from the divided kingdom, that's when, you know, after Solomon, when his son Rehoboam took the southern kingdom and Jeroboam split off, took the northern kingdom, from that point which is 1 Kings 11.31, all the way to Jerusalem's fall would be 394 years. Well, that's close. Because 390, remember, is the years of the sin of, of northern Israel. So maybe you round 394 to 390, although God doesn't often round. He's usually pretty precise. And the other problem is the northern kingdom really only lasted 252 years because they were diced, they were gone in 722 B.C. So I'm not really sure why their sin would continue after they cease to exist as a nation. So that's a little confusing. I'm going to make you more confused. If you add the 122 years of Saul, David, and Solomon to the 250 years, 252 years of the northern kingdom, you come up with the number 374. Well, that's kind of close to 390, but again, you've got to round up to get there. That doesn't make sense. And then the Septuagint came along, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they changed the number 390 to 190. It's 190 in the Septuagint. Now, we have Hebrew manuscripts that that go back further that state, no, 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 it, it was 390 years, or days. The Septuagint said, well, let's make it 190. Well, why would they do that? Well, the thinking was, we could perhaps, if it's 190 and it was a scribal error... We can fit Israel's demise in 722. We could go from there to the end of the Babylonian captivity. 190 years, but you're still a decade off. So that doesn't work. Are you thoroughly confused yet? I'm just getting started. Then you have to deal with Judah's 40 years. 
Judas, 40 years of iniquity. Okay, where does that come from? Some say it equates with the 40 years of the reign of Solomon. Because it was during Solomon's reign that idolatry began to seep into Judah for the first time. What wasn't there in David's reign became pretty preeminent in Solomon's reign. Or some have said it's the duration of the Babylonian exile after the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, because the exile was supposed to be 70 years, but it actually started before the fall of Jerusalem and then continued on down. So maybe it was those 40 years. But even then, you're, you're a decade off. What's the meaning of all of this? 390, 40. Add them all. If you add those two, by the way, here's another interesting thing. If you add 390 and 40, you come up with the number 430. I have my son Corey help me with the math. <laughs> 430 is the exact number of years Israel spent in Egyptian captivity. 390 plus 40, 430. Exodus 12 verse 40 says, The time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Hmm. Maybe we're getting somewhere. Because if if it's drawing us toward that conclusion, well, you know, Egypt is a picture of the world. Israel is a picture of the kingdom. 430 years in Egypt rather than in the kingdom of Israel. Egypt versus Israel. The world versus the kingdom. Captivity versus freedom. And it depends on which one you're going to choose. I mean, that applies to us today. You can choose captivity or you can choose freedom. Freedom in the Lord. Israel could choose captivity, which they did. They're heading to Babylon. Or they could have chosen freedom. And even those of Judah after the fall of Jerusalem, where did they go running? Egypt. Choosing the place of their original captivity rather than freedom in the Lord. And I want you to get this. And this is the most important thing here. Ezekiel on his side does not illustrate the length of the punishment. And I think this is the whole point of the, of the parable. He's not illustrating the length of time of their punishment. 390 years, 40 years. He's illustrating the length of time of their iniquity. He's bearing their sin. He's laying on his side. He's not bearing the wrath of the sin. He's bearing the weight of the sin. And if you read this carefully, what the Lord seems to be indicating, He says, verse 4, You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days you lie on it. Bear their iniquity. Not the wrath for their iniquity, but the iniquity itself. Not the wrath, but the weight. And if you don't get the numbers, it doesn't matter because we don't know. We don't really know exactly how it all fits. But we do know that the numbers, 390 and 40, are representative of the years they spent under the burden of their own sin. Not in the punishment for that sin. Are you with me? It's not wrath, it's weight. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying sin is in and of itself nothing more than dead weight. It's heavy. It's weighty. Psalm 38 verse 4 The psalmist writes, My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. Now let me ask you, ever try lying on your side for two or three days? 
You ever been sick and you could not get out of bed? And after about day two, how do you feel? I mean, sometimes you don't even know if you're getting better because your body aches so much from lying down. Your own weight weighing down on you. And it gets heavier and heavier the longer you lie there. Can you imagine lying there for 390 days? And the weight of your own body bearing down on your side day after day after day. And the soreness and the stiffness. By about day three, the sheer weight of your own body starts to bear on your muscles and bones and joints. God designed us for movement and rest. He designed us to get up and to lie down. He did not design us to stay under the weight of our bodies. Sin is dead weight. Sin is a burden itself. It makes you sore. Drags you down. It wears on you. And the longer we walk in any particular sin, the heavier it gets. And a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of Christians miss that point. A lot of non-Christians who choose a sin lifestyle start to wonder after a while why life is so heavy. Why is it so hard? Because your sin is a dead weight. You're dragging around a dead horse. That's what Ezekiel is portraying. Israel, Judah, for all these years you just sat in your sin. Like lying on the ground, getting heavier and heavier. But note this, while Ezekiel bore the weight of his people's sins by representation, Jesus bore the weight of our sins by redemption. You see, Ezekiel lying there didn't do anything for the sin. It didn't take the sin away. It wasn't in lieu of or in place of. He was not the representative sacrifice for the people when he's lying there. He's just showing them how pathetic their sin had been for so long. But Jesus comes along and bears the full weight of our sins on His shoulders at the cross and the result is He frees us of the burden. The weight is gone. He kills it there on the cross at Calvary. How many times have we been in Hebrews 12? I think there are just certain go-to passages in the Bible that the Holy Spirit says, hear it again, listen again, one more time, pay attention. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance or weight. Lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How can we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus lifts the weight, He kills the weight, and we don't have to walk in it any longer. So why do we? As I said Sunday morning, if we know the outcome of our sin, if we know what is wrong to do, why do we keep doing it? Why do we say to the Lord, here are my burdens, except for that one? You know, I remember Salita acting that out at the women's retreat. I was just there to leave worship. Okay? And they had a skit. She came in with all these bags and everything. And, and, and I, who was acting with you in that? Do you remember? It was Lori Beth. Lori Beth, yep. And Lori Beth says, hey, let me, let me take those for you. Let me get you free of that stuff. And Salita says, oh, great. Hands over and says, oh, oh, but that one, I need to hang on to that one. You know, and just would not let go. And it was a great example. Kind of an Ezekiel moment, really, there for you, Salita. <laughs> Representing that we just don't want to let go of our sin life. Lord, take all of my sin except this one because I'm so comfortable with it. 
Or accept this one because it helps me relax. Or accept this one because I just, I still kind of like it. And the Lord would say to you and to me, for every day you hold on to that sin, it gets heavier. It is a dead weight. Let me take it from you. Sin is a burden, my friends. We'll look at what Ezekiel does next. After bearing the dead weight of the sin, the Lord commands him to bear his arm. Verse 7, he says, Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Your arm bared. Why? Because the bare arm of the Lord speaks of judgment. God rolling up his sleeve and saying, I am about to strike. I am about to judge. And so Ezekiel now uh, vicariously rolls up his sleeve and begins to speak judgment against, again, the JPAD, <laughs> the little portrayal of Jerusalem. He is now speaking judgment in the siege. Interesting, this whole idea of bearing the arm is obviously about judgment here, and yet Isaiah 52, verse 10, tells us this. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Well, that's interesting. Because with Ezekiel, the bearing of the arm is judgment. With Isaiah, the bearing of the arm is salvation. How can it be both? Because only the arm of the Lord can both righteously judge and mercifully save. And it's your choice which one you're going to have. Will you ask the Lord to roll up His sleeve and take the weight of your sin off you? Or will you watch as He rolls up His sleeve and pronounces the judgment that your sin deserves? Now, one thing more about the sign of the position. Ezekiel probably wasn't on his side 24-7. Probably just didn't lie down and stay there for 390 days. The bed sores alone would be torturous. But we know that because as we continue on with the next sign... He had to do some things during this time. So he was probably lying down for a portion of time, a long portion of time, granted, every day. But at the same time, he had to perform some tasks during this siege of Jerusalem that he was so portraying. And the task comes in the third sign, the sign of the polluted bread. The polluted bread. Verse 9. As for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and put them in one vessel, and make them into bread for yourself. You shall eat it according to the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days. Your food which you shall eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight, and you shall eat it from time to time. The water you shall drink shall be the sixth part of a hen by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. Ever heard of Ezekiel bread? That's the recipe. So right there, Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 9, if you'd like to make yourself some Ezekiel bread, that's how you do it. I don't even know what spelt is, but you get this stuff. Wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and you make this bread from it. And there's a company that makes Ezekiel bread. I know because that's what I had on my sandwich for lunch today. We even have Ezekiel bread English muffins, which I really think ought to be called Ezekiel bread Hebrew muffins, but nonetheless, they're based on this. How did you cook it? I didn't. We bought it. Pre-made. Ezekiel bread. You can, you can purchase it. You can get it at you know, Whole Food Mart or um, Trader Joe's or wherever. Where at? SARS has it. If you want to pick up some Ezekiel bread and try it out, it, it is, it's really good bread. It's dense. It's very nutritive. It, it, it's healthy. It's a good staple food. 
But Ezekiel is only rationed here. You might note in verse 10, he's rationed 20 shekels a day. Well, that's the equivalent of about 9 ounces. So Ezekiel, you get to eat 9 ounces of bread a day. It's a crash diet. And verse 11 says, the sixth part of a hen of water is all he gets per day. Well, what's that? It's about 4 cups a quart. So he gets 9 ounces of bread and 4 cups of water a day, and that's all he's going to eat throughout these entire 430 days. It's a very graphic representation of famine. Now, Leviticus 26, verse 26 says, When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so that you will eat and not be satisfied. That's in the Torah law. That was back in the book of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke that as a curse, saying, this will happen if you rebel against these words. This is what's going to happen to you. Well, now Ezekiel is acting out what's happening in Judah that the Lord had prophesied centuries before. You're going to get about nine ounces of bread and four cups of water, and that's going to be your entire diet as the famine hits in the siege of Jerusalem. But I want you to understand that the bread here is good. Ezekiel bread is good bread. It's healthy bread. It's very good for you. But here's where the pollution comes in. Verse 12. You shall eat it as a barley cake, or maybe barley a cake. (laughs) Um, Having baked it in their sight over human dung. My Ezekiel bread was not baked that way. (laughs) Pretty sure. Then the Lord said, Thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I banish them. Did you know human dung burns? And so if you have no fuel... (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I hear Deb laughing already. I'm not going to get into this. I'm not going to talk about this. But in impoverished situations, people have cooked over dung when they could find no fuel for cooking. And the Lord says, this is what I want you to do, Ezekiel. Get a hold of some human dung. Don't know where he got it. Don't want to know where he got it. Here's the thing. The bread was good. The procedure causes the pollution. The procedure is bad. Bread's fine. But it's taking something good and healthy, the staff of bread here, and baking it over dung, which was absolutely detestable. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there. Verse 13. You shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be, when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it, and you shall turn to cover up your excrement. I never thought we'd go back to that passage. Deuteronomy 23.14 Since the Lord Since the Lord your God walks through the midst of your camp to deliver you and defeat your enemies before you therefore your camp must be holy and he must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. So there's the prescription in Deuteronomic law to make sure when you go you go outside the camp because it's detestable to the Lord to walk through the camp and to see this within the camp. It's also healthy for the people that it's outside the camp, right? Deuteronomy 14, verse 3 says, you shall not eat any detestable thing. And so Ezekiel, a priest who knows the law, completely objects to cooking Ezekiel bread over human dung. Verse 14, but I said, ah, Lord God, which is 
Pretty much, I think, what any of us would say. (laughs) Behold, I have never been defiled from my youth until now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. I haven't done anything gross like this. Why, Why would you ask me to do this? And the Lord says to him in verse 15, See, I will give you cow's dung in place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread. That's not much better. But it protects Ezekiel from defilement. From the defilement of cooking over human dung, he can use cow dung instead. But you know what? The exile itself was defilement. The fact that they were living in Babylon rather than in the holy land was a defilement, a picture of a polluted people. Uh, People set out to live now in the very capital of idolatrous pollution in Babylon. Amos chapter 7 verse 17, Therefore thus says the Lord, your wife will become a harlot in the city, and your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, and your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. So in reality, Ezekiel... (laughs) You're portraying something that's already taken place. You are already in an unclean position. Moreover, Amos the prophet says Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. And exile is defilement. But specifically the Lord now says of Judah and Jerusalem in verse 16, Moreover, He said to me, Son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem. And they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety and drink water by measure and in horror. Because bread and water will be scarce. They will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity that heavy sin that He's already portrayed for them. When we take the bread of life that nutritious, strengthening, enlightening Word of God and bake it over the human dung of the world, it's like polluted Ezekiel bread. Now you might say, okay, how do we do that exactly? Well, it's when we misread or misuse or abuse the Word of God, it's like eating defiled Ezekiel bread. Turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 32. Because when we talk about the staff of bread, gang, we're not just talking about our Bibles. There are those who are very particular about their Bibles. If, you, know, you don't drop your Bible. You don't toss a Bible to somebody. You don't bend up your Bible when you're teaching, Pastor Rick. You don't do these things to your Bible. And the Bible's not the issue. The Word... Jesus is the issue. And Jesus says in verse 32 of John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. In other words, Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Well, I said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have 
that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. That all that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. The Bible is our staff of bread so long as the purpose of Scripture is to direct us to Jesus. And I told you, I was going to say this every time we studied, in Ezekiel especially, that Jesus is the focus. When we take the Word of God and we set Jesus aside and we try to use it for other purposes, it tends to start to get cooked like Ezekiel bread in the wrong way. It is so easy to pollute God's Word when you remove Jesus from the equation. Suddenly you find people off in all kinds of tangents, in all kinds of weird ideas. And when we slice up Scripture to support a certain theology, or to promote a certain lifestyle, or to justify religion, it's cooking over compost. That's what it is. We take the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of the Word of God, as portraying and drawing us to Jesus. And we hear His Word in the Word. And it's healthy stuff. And it is not defiled. 